Please turn with me to the sixth chapter of Romans. Look again at these verses, verses 15 through 23. So I invite you to turn there and join me as we uh, together look at God's Word. Paul, again, in this passage is uh, countering what he anticipates uh, to be some questions, some objections to uh, this gospel of grace that he's preaching. Uh, and that's where this begins, and we'll make reference to this 15th verse uh, in these next few minutes, but we begin at verse 15. What then are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Are you kidding me? Oh, I'm sorry. It's a little interpretive rendering there of that verse. By no means do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms, and by that he means just by way of illustration. He's using slavery as an illustration. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, again, we humbly come before you, recognizing that your word is not enough. Recognizing that it's not enough for, have, for us to have these words on these pages. We need also the ministry of your spirit the one who takes these words and even in the foolishness of preaching takes preaching and by it converts and comforts and builds up and strengthens and sanctifies a people. So Lord Jesus, grant us your spirit as we consider your word to those ends. We ask in your name, amen. You may be seated. We're looking again at these verses 15 to 23 and the word that we sort of introduced last week. It's a word that's probably familiar to most of you. It may be, may be somewhat new to some of you. It's the word sanctification. It appears a couple of times in this passage. It appears, uh, uh, where is it? It appears here. It appears in verse 19 and then it appears again in verse 22. Uh, sanctification. It's a new word for our gospel vocabulary. I, often, 
when I, when I hear the word sanctification, I think of this cartoon that I saw in Christianity Today probably 30 years ago, and it's a, you know, it's a kind of a pencil sketch of a, of a pastor, a, a preacher in a kind of a rumpled up suit, and he's, he's leaning on the edge of his pulpit, and he looks out at his congregation, and he says, this is the fourth week that I've been preaching to you on the life-transforming power of the gospel. Why do you look like the same old bunch? And then, and I, I, I don't know why I make these ridiculous connections, but I make the connection between that picture of this guy in a rumpled up suit and he's, you know, preaching about the life transforming power of the gospel and he's saying, you know, you don't look much changed, you know. I connect that to this picture that I have in my head of a friend of mine who was learning to play golf and the first time I met him on a golf course, he showed up in a striped shirt, plaid shorts, black socks, and golf shoes. And I, I, you know, who let this guy out of the house? Right? Now, why do I use those illustrations? Well, whether it's the rumpled suit or the group of people to whom he's speaking or the guy who shows up on the golf course who doesn't know the rules of the game, you know, the etiquette, the dress and stuff for the... We're all a mess. We're all a mess. And sanctification, purely and simply, is about getting us out of the mess. The mess that we are and the mess that we are in. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about sanctification. And in the past weeks, we've, it's like we've been coming at this thing, frankly, from different angles. If you, if you listen to the sermons from the last couple of weeks, it's really all about this. And and two weeks ago today, I, I suggested three, three things for you to think about as we think about this word presenting, as I present myself, as I present myself to Christ, the mess that I am. That presentation, that act, you remember? It's a decisive act. It's a decisive act, and it's a personal act in that it takes in the whole of what I am as a human being. Read through this passage. You'll see Paul alluding to, if not explicitly referring to, the mind and the heart and the will. It's the totality of who I am. My thoughts, my affections, my actions, the totality of who and what I am, I present decisively to Jesus turning away from the old Adam and the old pattern of life. That was two weeks ago, and last week we talked about turning and trusting and resting, repenting and returning to Jesus and resting in Jesus. And I'm suggesting to you that just as Romans 3, 21 to 26 is the foundational passage in the whole of Scripture for understanding the nature of justification, this passage, Romans 6, 1 to the end of the chapter, is the foundational passage for understanding sanctification. And here's what we're trying to understand about this. What we're trying to understand that is sanctification in the first instance is not about me changing my clothes so that when I show up on the first tee, I'm not an embarrassment to everybody. It's not about me making sure that my suit is starched and not rumpled up. It's not about me trying harder. 
Look, there is a life of obedience to which I'm called. There's no mistaking that. There is a life of obedience to which I'm summoned. And it is not an easy life. But what I'm trying to suggest to you and what I believe Paul wants to remind these Romans of, these Christians who are listening to this letter be read, is that sanctification doesn't start with me trying harder. Okay, you've accepted Jesus. Now go be a better person. No, no, no. There's another starting point. And that starting point is what we're trying to get at here. That starting point is that moment by moment, day by day, week after week, month by month, year, decade after decade, the Christian life is a life of moment by moment dependence upon Christ. I needed Jesus to do something for me so that I could be in relationship to God. Now that I'm in relationship to God, moment by moment, I need Jesus to be doing something in me. And that's what sanctification is. And so to get at this again this week and and to begin talking about the medicine that our souls need, if we want to use the imagery of sin-sick souls, which is a good analogy for us to use because it's a biblical analogy, where do we find the medicine? That's the thing that we want to come to today. That's the place we want to get to. But in order to get there, I want to restate the problem. Paul actually wants to restate the problem in this passage. I want to define what is the solution and then talk about how we move forward. Okay? Restate the problem define the solution, and then talk about how we move forward. And what's the problem? To restate the problem. The problem is sin. The problem is sin. Now, my dear friends, my brothers and sisters, I'm in this with you, okay? I'm not the holy guy who's up here telling you what's wrong with you. I'm the not holy guy who's up here telling you first what's wrong with me. Just as Paul, I believe, in his heart of hearts is standing before the Romans and is reminding them that he has a problem himself. He's not the holy guy standing up in front of these folks saying to them, you've got a problem and here's how you fix it. We've got a problem together, my friends. We're in this together. We've walked this together. And the problem continues to be sin. Sin is the problem. Now, here's a a picture of this problem that has been very helpful to me through the years as I seek to understand what it is that God has done for me in Jesus and the real magnitude and greatness of this salvation that he has accomplished. And let me suggest it to you in this way, that sin is a threefold problem. It's a threefold problem. I think we've alluded to this in the past, but we need reminders. And I just want you to observe that in this passage, in these 23 verses, 
in the space of 23 verses, as Paul talks to people who have accepted Christ, who are justified by him, who are accepted by the Father, planted in his presence, given access to his presence, never to be removed, reconciled to him, sons and daughters of the living God, 17 times in this passage, as he writes to those people, you find the word sin. 17 times. Look, if sin were not something that I needed to be concerned about as a Christian who has accepted Christ, why would Paul be talking about it? But he is. He is talking about it. And the threefold nature of this this problem is what I want to suggest to you. And I, I continue to believe that we just, I don't, and I just don't think we do think seriously enough and deeply enough about sin. Not to be condemned, but to deal with it. To deal with the cancer that rots our souls, that robs us of joy, that steals away the life that Jesus has secured for us. So what is the threefold nature of this problem? Well, the first aspect of it is that sin is lawlessness. It is lawlessness. It's breaking a law. It's stepping over a limit, a barrier. It is offending against a holy and righteous God. It is lawlessness. And lawlessness, wherever there is lawlessness, if we really want for there to be justice, Wherever there is lawlessness, lawlessness has to be dealt with. I remember when I was a nine-year-old kid. I think I was nine years old. I went to the grocery store with my mother. And my mother's, you know, doing her grocery list, and I'm wandering the aisles, and I, I come to this, this display. Some of you remember these things, this little display someplace in one of these aisles. And hanging on this little display were these keychains with the little rabbit's foot. Remember the little rabbit's foot keychain thing? Well, you know, very much being the son of my mother, Eve, think about it, I'm the son of my father, Adam, and I'm the son of my mother, Eve, I looked at that rabbit's foot and I saw that it was delightful to the eyes. And it was a thing that would make someone happy and bring a contentment and a peace. And so I reached out and I took it. And I slipped it into my pocket. And we got to the checkout line, and my mother bought her groceries, and we went on home. And a few hours later, my mother came to me and said, what's this? I found an apple in your pocket or on your dresser. And it was the little rabbit's foot keychain. And I was caught. And there was a penalty, right? And you know what the penalty was? I don't know if I've told this story here before. You know, I lose track of my stories. My mother put me in the car. Not all of you have heard it, so it's still a good story. My mother put me in the car, took me the two minutes to the neighborhood grocery store, and had me walk into the manager's office and present him with the rabbit's foot and apologize to him for stealing it. That was a penalty, trust me. There was a price paid by a little eight, nine-year-old boy who had broken the law. 
right? That's, that's a part of the problem, my friends. And that part of the problem is what your justification deals with. That's why Paul can say in Romans 5.1, if you are a Christian today, you have peace with God. Finished. Done. Romans 8.1, you do not face the threat of condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. That is what your justification does for you. It deals with the problem of the penalty that comes from lawlessness. But the problem of sin isn't just that there's a penalty associated with it. The problem of sin also is that sin is a power. It is a power. That's why Paul uses the language of slavery in this passage. He says this. I'm, I'm using this, verse 19, I'm using this illustration because, because we all have natural limitations. And so he's using an analogy, and the analogy is the, the analogy of slavery. And a slave is someone who has no power, no rights, no ability to free or deliver himself or herself. Slavery. You're owned by another. You're mastered by another. You're dominated by another. The whole of the story of Israel is this, this story of bondage writ large, not across the life of one person, but across the lives of tens of thousands. And who is the evil oppressor? It is Pharaoh. And what is it that the people are powerless to do for themselves? Extricate themselves, deliver themselves, free themselves. They can't do it. Something outside of them, some alien force, some alien power has got to act to set them free. They can't do it for themselves. It's a slavery. It's a bondage. We minimize the significance of sin if we reduce it simply to acts of disobedience. I, I, don't know, I don't know how to get this more deeply into my own heart or more deeply into our hearts, but we minimize, no matter how egregious or serious an act of disobedience may be, if I reduce sin to a problem of a specific act of disobedience, I'm minimizing the significance of it because it is a power that enslaves. You know, I think I thought about this this last week. I thought back to that, that situation in the, in the IGA, you know, the West Side IGA. Remember the International Grocers Association? You're not around anymore, I don't think. But I thought back to that. You know, it isn't just the act of disobedience that's so troubling and perplexing. It's why. Why would I do that? You know, one of the great fathers of the church thought really deeply about this and produced a massive tome called Original Sin. And Augustine has shaped the thinking of the church because of a right understanding of the teaching of Scripture now for 16 centuries. And do you know what provoked his contemplating the deeper problem of the power of sin? When he was a young boy, a little older than an eight or nine-year-old, but 15 or 16, he was out with some of his pals, some of his buddies, 
and they were walking past a peach orchard. Now, Augustine came from a family of affluence. He had plenty of money. He was well-fed, well-clothed. He had everything that he needed. And Augustine, walking past that peach orchard with his buddies, looked around like Peter Rabbit in Farmer McGregor's garden, and he decided to steal some peaches. And steal the peaches he did. And did he eat them? Was he hungry? Was he famished? Was he like the disciples of Jesus walking through a cornfield who needed a bit to eat and so they took some corn and ate the corn on the Sabbath? No, he wasn't famished at all. He too was a son of Eve. He saw something that he liked, something that was attractive to his eyes. And for reasons that Augustine at that time didn't fully understand, he took it and rather than eating it, he used it as a baseball. They just kind of had a peach fight. It was that episode, something so seemingly inconsequential, stealing a couple of peaches and tossing them at your friends that provoked Augustine to think long and hard about the real nature of the problem. That it goes deep, way deeper than an isolated act of disobedience or law-breaking. Sin is a power. Augustine wrestled with this. It's not the what of what he did that bothered him so much. It was the why of what he did that so deeply troubled him. And Augustine, reflecting upon Paul, thinking about Paul, reading passages like this, did come to understand that sin enslaves. Folks, I've been doing this for over 30 years. I can tell you so many stories. I mean, personal stories, sure. But stories of people sitting in my office across the years, weeping, weeping, living not only with the consequences of their acts of disobedience, but weeping over their powerlessness before the power of sin in their lives. We, we grossly, grossly, misunderstand the nature of sin if we reduce it simply to acts of disobedience. And Paul is taking a lot of time in these verses to drill down beneath the surface to remind us that sin is a power. And it imprisons, and it steals, it robs of life, it consumes joy, it does not deliver on the promises. Now, there's a third sense in which sin is a problem. It, it is a problem because there's a penalty associated with it. It's a problem because it is a power from which we need to be delivered. But it is, it is a problem because it's just present with us all the time. And there's another word that we're going to see in Romans chapter 8. It's going to take a couple of weeks at least for us to get there, isn't it? There's another word that corresponds to this problem 
of sin as a presence, and that is the word glorification. My friends, the day is coming when you will never, ever be tempted again. You will never be tempted again. There is a day coming when this broken down flesh of yours, this thing that attaches you to this sin-plagued world, this cursed world, that body will be transformed and glorified and it will no longer be a stumbling block for you. Glorification, full and entire restoration, conformity with the image of Jesus, it's coming. And when it gets here, you will not struggle anymore. Penalty of sin, justification. Power of sin, sanctification. Presence of sin, glorification. Now, what's the solution? What's the answer to the power of sin? Well, Paul is telling us here, he's reminding these Romans There's a whole basis upon which you can live the Christian life. There's a whole reason why you can turn in the direction of Jesus Christ, why you can come back to him again and again and again. And it's verse 17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And I've got to quibble with the ESV at this point. I have to quibble with their translation of this word that is rendered in the ESV and a lot of other translations committed. What we read here is that you become obedient from, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. The word actually and literally means to be delivered. It means to be delivered. It means to be handed over to someone else or to something else. It's the word that's used in Luke eleven forty four, where Jesus says to his disciples, the Son of Man is going up to Jerusalem to be handed over to sinful men, to be delivered up to sinful men. It's a word that Paul uses in Galatians 3, 20, these classic verses. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me, handed himself over for me. To whom? Into the hands of sinful men that he might be put to death on a cross, betrayed into the hands of sinful men, given over to them. This vivid scene, I, you know, it's a movie thing again, but it's this scene in Braveheart when the Scottish nobles have, have conspired against William Wallace, and he's come to Edinburgh, and he thinks that he's going to have this consultation with the nobles, and his friends try to warn him from going there, don't go, William, but he says, I've got to go. And Robert the Bruce, who is not in on the plan, doesn't know what is going to happen, doesn't know that the other nobles have conspired to betray William Wallace into the hands of Longshanks, the king. And he comes to Edinburgh. And what happens? He is taken captive and he is handed over into the hands, into the power, into the authority of the king of England. And he's executed. 
That's, what, that's the language, that's the imagery that's being used here. But notice the nature of this deliverance. It's very deliverance, different from the kind of deliverance that Jesus experienced. Here we are not delivered into the hands of sinful men for our destruction, but we are delivered from bondage and sin into something else for our life. We're transferred, you see. What's the answer to the power of sin? It is something that God does for you. Something that God, in fact, does in you. He lifts you up out of a slavery and delivers you over to something else. Barb and I were in California. We we toured Alcatraz. There are displays all over Alcatraz. One of them I'll never forget. It's a quote from a prisoner. And the prisoner said, if you break society's rules, you go to prison. If you break prison's rules, you go to Alcatraz. There's no way to get off the rock. The only way to get off the rock is if somebody comes to the rock and liberates you and delivers you and sets you free from the prison that it is. And that is what Paul is reminding these Christians has happened to them. You've been set free. How many times does he say it? You've been set free. You've been set free. You've been set free. Why on earth would you want to turn back to bondage again? That's why in verse 15, he answers the question the way that he does. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Are you nuts? Don't you see what's happened? You've been set free from this slavery. In chapter 5, in the first part of chapter 6, the imagery is union with Adam, connection to Adam. You've been disconnected from Adam, who is sin and death. You've been united to Jesus Christ, who is light and life. Here it's slavery, coming at the same thing, using a different metaphor. You've been set free. Why in the world would you want to turn back to that again? No, you've been delivered over to something. And notice what it is that we've been delivered over to. We're no longer under law, no longer under its threat. Now we are under grace, exposed to its blessings. And notice what it is that we've been delivered over to. We've been delivered from something and been delivered to something. Paul says you become obedient from the heart not just with your external behavior, but from your heart, from someplace deep in your soul, something has happened, a great event has taken place, a great change has taken place, and from the heart, you've become obedient to the standard of teaching to which you were delivered. The standard of teaching to which you were delivered, or as some translations have it, the form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You see what you've been entrusted to? Think about it. This is important. Ultimately, I'm entrusted to Jesus. Jesus, who is the Word, right? Capital W, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything came into being through Him so that nothing that exists now could have any existence apart from Him. What is it that I've been turned over to? 
I've been turned over to Jesus, the word. I have been turned over to, delivered into a form, a mold, if you will, a, a form of teaching, a form of doctrine. I've been delivered over to that. My friends, basically what I've been delivered over to is what Edith Schaefer called a whole new way of seeing. A whole new way of seeing. And it begins with Jesus. And what I've been turned over to, what I have been entrusted to actually in this form of doctrine, it's like a, a person who works with, with wax or whatever and, or molds and, and, and has a mold and they want to make something and they take this, this liquid wax and they, and they pour it into this mold. You see, before it was just this lump of stuff. It was disordered. It was chaotic. It wasn't any, there wasn't form. It was shapeless and it's melted down. Great metaphor, right? Does sanctification ever feel like a fire for you? Melted down and poured into this mold so that it can take new shape. That's what has happened. That is what is happening. We've been delivered from something and we've been entrusted to something else. And it is this form of doctrine, this teaching, this whole new way of seeing that is like a mold that reforms and reshapes us and restores us. What's Paul thinking about? What does he have in mind here? I want to suggest to you, and I want to look at this more fully next week, I want to suggest to you that what he has in mind is simply the gospel, the gospel in its fullness. The whole gospel for the whole person. Or the whole Bible for the whole Christian. That's what he has in view. The gospel, the truth of it, the content of it, the power of it. That's what I've been turned over to. And all of it, of course, the entire gospel, the whole counsel of God, the whole truth of God culminates in the person and work of Jesus. That is what I've been turned over to, a whole new way of seeing. So how am I changed? This is the third thing, isn't it? How do I begin to move forward? Sin is a problem. It's a big problem. Penalty, power, and presence. How do I begin to move forward with respect to the power of sin? I understand in the first instance that if I'm a Christian today, really and truly, if I have humbled myself before Christ, if I have acknowledged who and what I am before Christ, that I, in fact, am a sinner, that I can't, I can't point in the other direction. Folks, just bear with me for a second. I had an incredibly painful conversation two weeks ago with a friend. And this, this friend came not only to me, but to a couple of other ministers and acknowledged, acknowledged a lifelong struggle against a brutally imprisoning, brutally imprisoning, besetting sin. Forty years. Use your imagination. Use your imagination. You won't be far off target, I guarantee you. 
40 years. But you know what he had done? He had closeted that sin away. He'd compartmentalized it. He'd shoved it off to the periphery of his life. He'd refused to acknowledge it openly and honestly before Jesus and in the company of the committed among the fellowship of God's people. And do you know what it did? It ruined him. And when he came to us and began talking to us about it, friends of his, he didn't point the finger at somebody else. He didn't say it's because of the way my father treated me. He didn't say it's because of the way my mother treated me. He didn't say it's because of what society has done to me. He owned it. He said, it's me, it's mine. For 40 years, I've denied it, and I want it out. And in getting it out, in being honest about it, was the beginning of true recovery and hope for him. Look, if I'm a person this morning who has come to the place where I said, Jesus, I need you. I need you. You know what has happened? Jesus in grace and mercy has delivered you. He's broken the power of sin and he has set you on the path toward restoration. And what he uses in your life is the whole counsel of God, the word of God, and especially This is so humbling, especially the word of God preached in the company of God's people in the midst of worship before the face of God. This is what God uses to change us. This is what we've been entrusted to. This is what we've been turned over to. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for your salvation. So what's my encouragement to you? My encouragement to you is that privately, in families, consume this book. Eat this book. Devour it. It is a way of seeing. It is the story of redemption. It is the story of Jesus Christ. And it is the power of God for your salvation. Come to worship. Drag people kicking and screaming to worship. Because in the context of worship, God, by his good pleasure, is pleased to anoint the preaching of his word by his spirit for the reconstruction and restoration of this sinner. These are the things God has appointed. This is the medicine that our souls need. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please be faithful to us, walk with us, help us, encourage us that we not neglect this means which you have appointed, this form of doctrine, this standard of teaching. Oh God, and by grace in your mercy, would you somehow use the foolishness of preaching, the gospel of Christ in all of its fullness, for our reclamation and restoration. God, continue to deal with the problem of sin's power in our lives by delivering us more and more over into the safekeeping of Jesus.
as we find him really and truly in his word. Lord Jesus, do this work for your great glory and praise and for our good as your people. We ask this in your name. Amen.